Hello, and welcome to the London Writer Salon podcast. I'm Matt. And I'm Parle. And each week we sit down with a writer that we admire to talk about the craft of writing and the art of building a successful and sustainable writing career. These interviews are recorded live with our global writing community. If you would like to join us for the next recording or write with us at our daily Writer's Hour writing sessions, head to LondonWritersSalon.com for more information. In this episode, we speak with the author Laura Kay, who has made a name for herself writing light-hearted stories about love. Her debut novel, The Split, was described as meeting Marion Keyes and Dorno Porter in a gay bar in Sheffield. And her latest book, Tell Me Everything, follows the love life of Natasha, a therapist who walks a fine line between order and chaos. In this conversation with Laura, we chat about her writing journey from journalism to novels, queer visibility in fiction, writing sex scenes, and how Laura writes, edits, and structures her romantic comedies. Laura also talks about tackling writer's block with what she calls an ideas walk. She talks about the reality of forging a career as a writer and gives us her approach to dealing with critics and feedback. Laura was honest, refreshing, and fun to chat with. Without further ado, we hope you enjoy our conversation with Laura Kay. And if you're loving these conversations and want to help support the podcast, please rate and review us wherever you listen to us. Each month, we give away prizes to our reviewers, things like mugs and stickers and other goodies. Plus, it's just a nice way to show us your love and to help keep us going. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome to the London Writer Salon, Laura. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> we are so thrilled. And while we were doing research on you, we noticed that you have a master's in American history. Obviously, you might be able to tell I am from America. So I'm curious, why of all subjects was that your master's direction? Honestly, I just had a really fantastic tutor when I was doing my undergraduate. And it sort of led me in that direction. We studied the Vietnam War when I was doing my BA and I found some really fascinating sort of raw material to do my dissertation on. Sort of got really, really into it and then carried it on for a master's, but it was never really my plan. And I've uh, I've never done anything with it, <laughs> but I really enjoyed it while I was doing it. And so when did writing enter your life? At what point was it after that, before that? When did writing enter? Yeah. So I've, I've, always done it which I think is like quite a common answer for most writers they sort of have always done it I've always written sort of short stories and like poems and journaled and when I was at university I did work on the student paper and I was blogging and sort of writing for music websites things like that and then I knew that I wanted it to be my career so when I finished university I started working for a local magazine that ran out of a garage in sort of north of Sheffield it was a very unusual operation but I got to write sort of features and reviews and things like that so yeah I mean I've always wanted to do it and I've always sort of been lucky enough to make a career out of it. And were those paid writing jobs those early writing one or do you remember your first pound that you got from a piece of writing? So no all throughout university I didn't get paid I was just happy to do it for the experience or I was told that I should be happy to do it for the experience and then I was paid to work at the local magazine, barely, but I was paid. But I remember the first time I got paid, I think, for a writing job. 
it could have been one or two things. I wrote an article for Diva magazine that went in the print magazine, which was major for me. That was very exciting. And I also wrote a piece for The Guardian about what it was like to finish university with no job prospects. (laughs) (laughs) And I think I got paid £90 for that. And it felt like everything to me. It's amazing. And you've come so far. And here you are. You've got two books out that we're going to be able to talk about and one forthcoming, a third one forthcoming. But your first published book, The Split, in 2018, we are curious to see that you were selected as one of 10 writers in Penguin's Right Now program. And that's where you developed that novel. Can you place us in your life at the time? What did your writing look like? What did your career look like? And why did you apply for that program in in particular? Yeah, so I had been working at The Guardian for, I think, four years, but not as a writer. I was working as a journalist, but it was sort of like community journalism. So dealing with sort of stories that came in from our readers and comments and things like that. So it wasn't necessarily what I thought I was going to be doing. And I was still writing the odd article for The Guardian, but not really. And I didn't really have time to pitch because I was exhausted. I was managing a team and I'd never heard of the Penguin Right Now program. And on the final day that you could apply, I saw someone retweeted a thing about it. And I had about a thousand words of just this like very rough story that I'd been playing with, which is how many words you needed to apply. So I just sort of, I think probably like an hour before the deadline, I just sent those thousand words off and I didn't think anything else of it. And then the process of of right now is if you get selected, they take about 150 people to go for like a day in like London or Nottingham or wherever. So I got sent to the London day, had a nice time, like met some people, left. And then they call you back and then you get to do like a phone call with an editor. And I got to that stage and I was like, huh, that's interesting. I'll be able to use this at some point, whatever. And then, yeah, I was at work at my desk doing the usual and I found out that I'd got on and it was just unbelievable that it was just that split second of applying and it honestly changed the course of my life. It's amazing. We actually, we just shared a link to it because it it looks like about a week ago, they opened up the 2022 window and we shared it with our community and it looks amazing. What did it actually look like when you were inside it? On the website, someone described it as, it's the ultimate boot camp for aspiring writers. I entered with a dream and left with a plan, which sounds wonderful. What, What did the nuts and bolts of that program look like? Because we're curious, maybe as a community, can we take some of that and help each other? So yeah, what did that look like inside? So the reality of it was that I got six sessions with an editor at Figtree. That was the imprint that took me on. So three in person and three over the phone. So they took my manuscript as it was, which I worked on it in between submitting a thousand words and starting the programme. I got it to about 30,000 words, I think. They took me from an unbelievably rough draft, like an appalling draft uh, to having a somewhat finished product. But I will say by the end of the year, I probably, after I finished the programme, did two more drafts of the manuscript. Like that's how many drafts there were of this of this manuscript. It was an interesting and useful process. Like I'd never had my fiction edited before, which was really eye-opening and tough. But coming from a journalism background, like I really had a thick skin. So there was nothing I wasn't really prepared for someone to say about my work, but incredibly useful. It was really eye-opening to see the publishing world as a business and how it works on the business side. I think 
I went into it with this kind of like dream like I thought it's like this dream world right that you like hardly anyone gets to enter and then as soon as you're in the doors you're like aha it's a business it's a company just like anything else they just want to make money at the end of the day and it's really useful to see it from that perspective you're to see your work through the eyes of people that see your work as a product and that sounds really cynical but it, it is incredibly useful and as a writer like you sort of sadly have to be aware of that and yeah I mean it really gave me insight into how to best find a literary agent at the end of it like I wouldn't I'm not sure that I'd have the agent that I have now without it and I was really lucky enough at the end of that process to meet with like several agents and get to choose to work with someone that I really gelled with yeah it was a really useful process and I think the thing that was that has really stuck with me that I'm so grateful for is that I got to meet a group of people who were going through exactly the same thing and I have a couple of like really incredibly close friendships from people now who are going through the same thing that I'm going through like that's the most invaluable part of it I think. That's really interesting to hear because I think we definitely see that in the community that just having like-minded writers who are perhaps at the same stage as you can be so invaluable. I'm really curious about the um, editorial feedback you were getting. I'm curious whether now having an editor at your publishing house was a very similar type of feedback. Was it full developmental edits that they were giving you? Is that what was so helpful? Or was it just like a realistic look at the market telling you actually you need to shift this section because it might not be the right fit? Full edits. So yeah, it was full developmental edits. It was basically like it had one strand of plot and by the end it was actually something entirely different. Being edited now is a little different just because I'm a better writer. Like I know how to structure a book now. So when my editor comes in, I'd be incredibly surprised now if she was saying, you need to take this entire plot out or this character's not working or whatever. It's a more collaborative process now. And also I'm working with an editor now that I know really well and we know how to work with each other. Whereas I, you know, I only met the editor that I worked with at Penguin six times. So she didn't know me and I didn't know her. And so we were, it was a very different process, but it was still incredibly useful in terms of the market. That was interesting. And ultimately her edits on it didn't make a difference to that because they never acquired the book. So the point of Penguin is that uh, the Penguin Right Now program is at the end, they take your book to acquisitions and potentially buy it. And they didn't buy my book because they said they didn't know where it would sit in the market. They didn't know where it would sit on a shelf. They didn't know who would buy it. And that was after a year of developing it, which is really interesting. And there is a happy ending to that story, which is that my agent was thrilled and said that it would have been a mistake to have let Penguin acquire it. And then it went to a six-way auction. So, yeah. Nice. Oh, wonderful. That's the outcome we <laughs> wanted for you. And I'm I'm just curious, like, was there anything that changed between the version that Penguin saw and the eventual version that Quercus had? No. So it was just a market, it was a subjective opinion about what was going to be popular in the marketplace. Yeah. And it's so interesting. And I think this is just such a, and I, I hold absolutely, I mean, this is just how it goes. It's, but it's, I think it's just something to really like remember if someone's saying no, it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with the work. It just means that it's not right for them because there were people bidding from other Penguin imprints. Like it just wasn't, that particular imprint wasn't the right one for me and it wouldn't have worked. And, you know, the editor that I'd worked with left very soon after and blah, blah, blah. like it just wasn't meant to be. At the time it was devastating, but very quickly afterwards it made total sense. So like just something to, to bear in mind. 
It's a reassuring tale, I think. <laughs> yeah, totally. I'd love to go back to the application as those first 1,000 words. Mm. You have a sense on what they saw in you and what they saw in that application. I mean, clearly you're a great writer, but probably you know hundreds of people who submitted were great writers as well. Do you know what in particular kind of took you from step one to step two and kept you along? Did you get any of that feedback? Um, that it was funny. So I think the point, I wouldn't write something that was funny. And also that it was, <laughs> it was a very depressing story made funny, which I think was the thing that they were excited about. And they were also excited that it was a queer love story, but the point of the story wasn't about being queer. That was sort of incidental to the plot. And that's what they have been looking for. I think it was very zeitgeisty and I, it was just a right time, right place thing for me. Mm which is a theme we'll talk a little bit about with your other books as well. And maybe one final question on this. If anyone's applying to right now, maybe they're inspired by your story, or maybe they're applying to something similar. Do you have any advice? It seems like a deadline worked for you. Wait till the last minute and then press submit. Any other advice on people submitting to programs or competitions like this? I would just say, I mean, this isn't what I did. So this is very much say, uh, do as I say, not as I did. But make sure that you have really, really edited that work until you are so, so happy with it. But also make sure that you're submitting work that you really enjoyed writing, because I think that comes through. I think sometimes I've been guilty of this, like submitting work that I think that people are going to like rather than work that I really like. And I think that that shines through a lot. And there's always in these applications, like loads and loads of room to write about yourself and like make sure you take advantage of that, because I think that that really makes a big difference, because a lot of the time people are looking for people that they think they can work with and get along with on just like a personal level, as well as the work itself. So how integral were those bylines that you had at Guardian and elsewhere? Do you feel like that was an important part that was the about you or was there something else about you that you thought if you had a, a guess? I think that's a really good question. If I was to guess, I would say they probably were important just because that's the way this industry works. And that's a just a sad, a sad fact. But there were loads of people on the program who were in completely different industries and had never written before. So it doesn't mean that you're not going to get onto these programs just because you haven't worked in the industry before. Mm, amazing. Well, great. Let's turn to your next book. Tell me everything. Came out to great acclaim. We both loved reading it. It's so fun and easy to read. Like you're just, next thing you know, you're like, you're 20 pages in, you're 40 pages in. But it's a story about a therapist, Natasha, who thinks that her life is all put together, but clearly it is not. Can you tell us the concept or how that concept, the seed of that concept landed for you? How did it arrive to you? Yeah, so there's sort of two strands to this. One is that I really, really wanted to write about somebody who appeared to have their lives together sort of professionally. I really wanted to write about a woman who was professionally like doing really well for herself, but that that was sort of also alongside a personal life that was falling apart. The inspiration came from the fact that my my ex is a therapist. <laughs> and so I actually, I know a lot of therapists sort of like socially, and I'm always so fascinated by what's going on with them. And I know how they come across in their professional lives, which is like very you know, the walls up and you've got no idea what's going on and all of this. And then I know, I know what's going on behind closed doors. And it's always like more scandalous even than you would think. And I really wanted, like, I just thought that was such a brilliant dichotomy and I knew I wanted to write about it. So yeah, that's where the inspiration came from. I was going to say, when we were reading, 
it became pretty clear. She knows something about therapists. And clearly after living with one, it's very clear. You're an excellent observer. Um, Thank you. <laughs> so when we were looking at the reviews of, of the book, messy comes up a lot and relatable when people describe the characters in your books. And we were curious, how do you think about character development? Do you let the characters reveal themselves to you while you write? Or do you use any exercises to meet your characters? And maybe use the characters, Natasha or others, in Tell Me Everything, if that helps. Yeah, so I don't use exercises to get to know my characters, but I always, I sort of come to character first. So I always feel like I know my characters really, really well before I even start writing. So I sort of, I felt like I knew Natasha, I felt like I knew Georgia, and I felt like I knew Margot, like completely. And then I started writing. And then it's pretty easy because I just know, especially Natasha, what she would do in basically any situation. And so then I I sort of try to get to a point with a character where I feel like I could put them anywhere. And I would I could write a story around that, you know, scenario because I just know them so well. So I, I sort of sat with her for quite a long time before I started writing her. And then it felt she felt real enough to me that I could get going. And what does sitting with her look like to you? Uh, letting her sort of develop it's such an interesting that it's so interesting when I think about it in in practice because it sounds like such a bizarre thing well you're in the right place to describe it yeah <laughs> I think we all get it yeah it's just um that I just had a seed of her I just had an idea of her and I knew that I wanted to write about this person that was had these two very different lives going on and then she was going to struggle romantically and that I just sort of let her build and then I built a world around her so her sister and the relationship with her mother relationship with her father and then I set her in a place so like in Brighton so then I knew where she lived I knew where she walked around I knew where she might go to the pub on a Friday night like I guess it's kind of like world building really but with someone at the center of it so you get to sort of like see someone go about their daily life yeah and across her you know across the story she changes as she sort of confronts the things that she's running from including her relationship with her father her I guess her love for Georgia and I'm curious about whether how deliberate or how much and how you thought about plotting for that character? Did you write it out and then come back to it later and chisel out the plot? Yeah, so I'm really not very good at plotting. I'm very much sort of a vibes-based writer. So I wrote sort of the story that I wanted to write about her and it was very loose. And then I sort of came back to it and started putting other bits in. This is where my brilliant editor comes in and it's like, this is lovely, but what's happened? <laughs> Maybe some things need to happen. When I actually wrote the first draft of the book, the scene where, oh, this is a massive spoiler, but there's a scene where um, Natasha turns up at someone's door in the middle of the night, basically, and is like, you know, it's you, it's always been you. And the book originally opened with that scene, but we didn't know who it was. And then it took us back to the beginning. So I kind of that was already in my head. I knew always that she was going to end up with that person and that that was the way that it was going to happen. And so I suppose a lot of the story was built around that moment and a big argument that happened, those two things. And then it was sort of like building up to that and then coming down from that was the challenge. And a lot of writers have this struggle or conundrum trying to figure out whether or not they have a big reveal hinted at in the beginning or whether they keep it to the end. What made you change and move that reveal or partial reveal to the back of the book? In the end, it was too obvious who it was. And I actually thought it was still really obvious. 
like all the way through who it was going to be but so many people have messaged me being like it was such a lovely surprise when it was who it was which is really great because mm. like in my mind there was no other option but I think some other people were maybe slightly rooting for someone more unsuitable. I'd love to talk about your writing. There's quite a, quite a few questions. Just, you know, as we said at the start of the interview, your writing is very fluid. The story flows. And we're curious as writers how this process was for you, what it looked like on the other side of the desk. And so we talked about plotting and you said that you prefer to, you said you're a vibe space kind of writer. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a horrible thing to have repeated back to you. But yes, that is exactly <laughs> what I said. Yeah. <laughs> no, those are my words. I own them. Yeah. I mean, yeah, tell us a little bit about that. Like, what was it, you know, when you had the seed of this idea, you talked, you had this idea for Natasha finding her true love. When you sit down to write, are you aiming for a certain word count? Are you trying to complete a certain scene? What are you thinking when you're sitting to writing? When you're vibing. When you're vibing. When I'm vibing. So, uh, yeah, I am often quite trying to just hit a word count. And then I always tell myself if it's all rubbish, I can just chuck it away and start again the next day. Otherwise, I'm not going to do it. And I think, and I don't know whose advice this was, but it's fantastic advice, which is basically like, don't wait for inspiration to strike, just sit down and write like it's any other job, which is what I try and do every day and haven't been particularly great at recently. But when I was writing Tell Me Everything, it was lockdown. So I actually had tons of time. I was working full time, but I was at home and I didn't have my commute. So all of that spare time I was writing and I actually got to a point where I was writing. I don't write chronologically necessarily. So I tend to write the bits that I'm looking forward to writing and then try and sew them together. And when I actually heard Elizabeth Strout speaking recently and she said that she doesn't write chronologically, she just writes scenes. And then at the end of the day, she reads them back. And if she can find the heart in them, she keeps them. And if there's no heart, she bins them. And then the process of putting a book together is, yeah, just sewing together all the scenes with heart. And I actually think that's a really beautiful way to write. And I always tell people if they're stuck, like just stop writing scene by scene and write whatever it is you're aiming towards and that you're excited about, write that bit. And then other things will fall into place. Yeah, so that's kind of my process. And then eventually at some point I'll be like, oh, that's about 90,000 words. I guess it's done. Nice. What a great way to bring joy back into your writing process. And we can say, I think this will go down very well with many of the writers in the room who prefer to vibe their writing rather than today. A lot of people felt seen. We saw in the chat. Oh yeah, I'm having a look. It's so good. Yeah. But you describing your process, which is part of the beauty of you know hearing your story is to people can feel like they're doing it wrong or that, you know, I'm weird because it's not the way. And just hearing you talk about it. Yeah, I think you've, it's resonated with a lot of people. So thank you. Oh, good. Yeah, I really, I think it's quite um, a common thing that people can feel that they're, they're not a real writer because they're not doing X, Y, and Z. But like, if you're writing and enjoying it, that's basically it, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious, how long did it take you to write your two books? Well, now your three books? Um, the split took absolutely ages because it was just really bitty. And then because I was writing it with the program, you know, I was writing it sort of not in a particularly natural way. I was doing it in a way that worked with the, with the scheme. I don't even know how long that took, probably like a year and a half. Tell me everything I probably wrote in about six months. The third book that's coming out next year, I probably wrote in about three months and I have, (laughs) I was like, maybe 
this is just going to be my process now because I'm such a skilled writer that I can just write things in three months and I'm trying to write book four at the moment and my god it's taking forever like I was sitting down to try and write something today and I think I wrote about 300 words so I think it all just depends on you know where you are in headspace and what else you've got going on and whatever the idea is and how disciplined you're feeling. Hmm. We're curious also about how many drafts you go through to get to the final product. So once you've written it and then you send it off to the editor and the back and forth, maybe even just with your latest book, how many drafts? Loads, maybe three or four, maybe four drafts. Absolutely like a lot of drafts. Yeah. And I mean, I've only just now, and it's just been sent, the proof copies have just gone to print in the US. I don't think they have in the UK yet. And I've only just finished the copy edits, like just like, I mean, it's endless, really. And I'm sure there's still going to be stuff that we're going to change before it actually goes to print. I've had writers say 30, 40 drafts. So when you said three or four. Oh, no, that's a nightmare. I was also listening to someone talk recently on a podcast. It might have been Catherine Ryan Howard, who I love, who when she's finished the first draft, she reads it and then she deletes it and then she starts again which is incredible. And she's a like phenomenal writer. So it obviously works for her, but that would not work for me. That sounds like hell. I think we've had, there's someone else we interviewed who said that they are quite happy to do that as well because they, re- sure. they <laughs> rewrite the book. And um, I'm curious about when you, once the draft is written and you're going, actually, you know, before you submit to the editor, once you've finished your, a draft that you're reasonably happy with, will you then go back and do a whole read through? Will you self-edit before you send it off? And if so, what are you looking for in the self-editing process? Yes, I always self-edit. Actually, I'm really bad for sort of my first three or four chapters are always so good because before I've written the rest of the book, I just go back and edit and edit and edit because it's the easiest thing to do. And I love editing. So yes, I go back through. What am I looking for? I'm looking to check that I'm not endlessly repeating myself. I have a horrible habit for using the same words over and over again, especially, and I have a terrible habit of saying things are absolutely something or definitely something or, you know, whatever. It just makes everything feel really clunky. So I'm trying to strip it of clunkiness, try and get it as sort of succinct as possible. But when I'm doing that, I'm trying not to get myself too weighed down in like plotty stuff, because like truly that is what an editor is for. And you're never going to get to it because you're so you're so in it. You need someone else to look at it for you. So I'm really just trying to get it to a level where I'm not like embarrassed to have someone read my own writing at that point. Because I, I mean, first drafts like I can't even are so terrible. And like I think anyone who's reading through their work and thinking, oh, I should just bin it or this is pointless. Like I can't stress enough how bad they are. And even the most like amazing writers, their first drafts are shockingly bad. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Thanks for sharing that. Um, do you have any beta readers or, or trusted friends that you might send a partial manuscript or a chapter or two just to get feedback or do you shy away from that? No, I don't really do that. I, I have a couple of friends who have also had a couple of books published who I sometimes run stuff by. We have, you know, WhatsApp groups where we'll, it's much more likely for us to run things like titles, covers, um, taglines and like big picture stuff rather than actual writing by I'm not very good at sharing my writing occasionally I'll let someone like a friend or you know whoever read something that I'm working on but it's so rare it goes to my agent who I trust completely to tell me if it's shockingly bad and then it just goes to my editor yeah 
you mentioned titles and I'm curious about this. I love that you have a WhatsApp group with other writers <laughs> and we get this question a lot about, you know, how do I choose a good title? And I recognize that obviously the agent and an editor have a role in this too, but I'm curious whether you have any thoughts on what makes a good title and anything, any exercises you do or any thought process you go through in order to find a good title. I'm actually traditionally rubbish at titles. So the split, my agent, my editor and I came up with probably 30 different options that we sent to Quirkus, my publisher. And ultimately the sales team came back to us and said, you can call it the breakup or the split. <laughs> and we were like, oh, right. Which uh, neither of which were on our list. I think originally it was called Malcolm, which is the name of the cat in the book. And then it was called The False Start. And then it was called The Split. So that had nothing to do with me. Tell me everything. Uh, my friend Ashley came up with when we were on the tube. And I was like, what are things therapists say? And she was like, tell me everything. And I was like, yes. Because, I mean, we'd come up with some really generic titles between my agent and I, and I was just didn't like it. So Tell Me Everything came from that. Uh, my third book, Wild Things, I came up with, finally, and no one's ever questioned it. And I've, we've never even had to discuss it. And sales teams are into it, and both my UK and US publishers are into it. So I think I'm finally getting there. And so what did you do to come up with this title? I just immediately it came to me like I just knew that's what I wanted to call it like it works on every single level like the person who is the protagonist in the book is doing a year of wild things but it also refers to her and her friends when they move to the countryside out of London they are the wild things themselves it's just it's a really good title but my friend Emma Hughes who is also an author has written a really fantastic book called No Such Thing Is Perfect is really great at coming up with titles and she will write down every single word that she can think of to do with her book and she'll just do it all in a big circle and she'll just write them all across the page and then she'll string something together from that and she's really really excellent at it so if you're stuck that kind of mood board really really helps. Mm -hmm. It's also really helpful actually even just hearing that you and your agent had submitted 30 titles and in the end the sales team tend to have the last say because they're the ones at the front line actually selling it into the retailers. So maybe it's a good lesson for us all to not obsess about titles. No way. Like, especially if you're at the stage where you're submitting to like agents or editors, or whatever, like they're going to change it almost without question. So. Hmm. so you've written some excellent romantic comedies. Are you also a, a great reader or watcher of romantic comedies as well? I am. I actually read really broadly. But I love rom-coms and I love watching rom-coms. Yeah. I'm trying to think what I have read recently. I just read Lex Crouch's latest book infamous mm. so good yeah they're really really great at what they do yeah I am I love a rom-com and I think when I was I've always loved rom-coms but when I was growing up there weren't loads of rom-coms where I saw myself mm. represented so I think that's kind of where my desire to write them comes from I just want to write what I wanted to read what more generally what do you think makes a great rom-com I mean you mentioned some of the key elements in your story there was the argument there was the showing up at the door do you feel like there's certain things that every rom-com or most rom-coms need to have in order to feel like this is a good rom-com? Yeah. So tropes is like such a huge thing. Like people love to like enemies to lovers and friends to lovers and things like this. Or fake dating is obviously a, a huge one at the moment. But I don't think you necessarily need that. I think as long as you're hitting some of the beats, you're fine. But I think the most important thing is to have your reader invested in your protagonist and wanting your protagonist wanting to find love and the reader wanting your protagonist to find love. And then I think you're halfway there. And then you don't necessarily have to hit all the beats that people are expecting. You don't necessarily have to like 
rely on the tropes that people want to not that and I'm a huge fan of the tropes and I I love it and I think leaning into the tropes is great and in my next book I've done exactly that but I think you can play with it as long as your reader is invested enough in your character Mm. is there anything that you actively did or maybe worked at it with your editor whether it's Natasha making her someone that readers want to feel invested in or maybe your next book Wild Thing the character there. Is there anything you deliberately did to say, how can I make this character more someone we want to root for? Yeah, I think with Natasha, I felt like she was really easy to root for. But I can see how, because of, you know, she's sort of a serial dater and like is somewhat careless of people's feelings, like you might not root for her. So I just think it was a case with her of sort of making sure, because I obviously wrote in the first person, making sure that she was that we could always see what was going on behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. So like whatever her actions were that felt kind of like, ah, what are you doing? Like that seems really unfair to that person. You're being careless. We knew what was going on with her, which was almost always absolute turmoil, which I think everyone can relate to. You know, you might not be behaving in the best way possible on the outside, but it's usually because you've got something really grim going on on the inside. I think with my next book, L, the protagonist, she's immediately easy to relate to because she's a total nightmare she's just a mess and she hates her job and she never got to where she wanted to and she's hopelessly in love with her best friend and so I think you know there's something there something there for everyone Mm. (laughs) totally (laughs) I'd love to turn to uh sex scenes you have a number of rather I call them authentic sex scenes because they're you know they're slightly awkward slightly funny humorous and also quite tender at the same time and I'm just curious about your approach to writing sex scenes, whether you have any thoughts on them. Was it difficult to write? Did you hold back from including something in there? No. So I love writing sex scenes. I think they're so much fun. I write sex scenes as if no one's ever going to read them. And then when they get edited, that's, you know, horrible. <laughs> and then I just have to pretend that my mum and dad are never going to read them. But I think they are It's so much fun. And when I'm as a reader, I love to read a sex scene. I When I get to a point where two characters are finally getting together and then it sort of fades out. Very disappointing to me. So I don't think I hold anything back. I think I am always really conscious of writing from very much from the perspective of the character. So I always really want to make sure like so, for example, with Natasha, like she's always like super in her head and she isn't necessarily having sex because she really like is mad into the person she's having sex because it's like a distraction from life and you know it's something to do and like that's what she enjoys which is like totally fine and legit but that means that the running commentary in your head is going to be quite different from if you're like finally sleeping with someone that or you've been wanting to for ages and so I think I'm always very conscious of making sure that it comes from a place of writing from the character's point of view and their experience rather than from my own because I think like some authors like I've done panels before where people have said they've been really conscious of never wanting people to think that it's about them and it can be a really blurred line especially if you're like a queer author in like their 30s writing about queer people in their 30s like you know so I think it's just always you can have loads of fun with it if you make sure that you're very much in the headspace of the characters and remember that people are definitely going to read it and you are going to have it edited which is brutal and what are some of the notes from the editors or the edits is it just like this is too explicit or is it more colorful than that no 
it will be things like, can we make it a bit more clear what exactly is happening here? <laughs> uh, that's that's a sort of PG version of a particular edit. Things like that, where I'm like, oh god, you've really read it. <laughs> so but it's all good fun. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to read another review or a quote from a review. And this reader said, describing Tell Me Everything, a queer rom-com where queerness is not being questioned and the storyline is uplifting and feels real. And this was a theme through a lot of the reviews people talking about. And you mentioned this earlier too. Your book was in books are clearly a, a breath of fresh air for readers. And for those of us who aren't aware, what is the state of queer literature today? And what do you think that your books do differently that seems to resonate with so many readers? I think actually there is loads and loads of queer literature coming out. And when the split came out, I think it was right at the start of publishers getting really excited about queer commercial fiction. There's always been a lot of queer literary fiction that sort of leans slightly towards more. It's very serious and quite often quite dark and tragic. And there's been much less commercial fiction and I think yeah publishers are realizing there's a market for it which is where everything comes from if there's not a market for it they're not going to buy it which is really exciting so there's loads of really fun stuff coming out I'm trying to think of some examples so like there's was a book last year or actually earlier this year Henry Fry's first time for everything Lily Linden wrote a book called Double Booked which is really a brilliant like bisexual rom-com Matt Cain wrote a book and has another one coming out next year that all fall into this sort of commercial space. Justin Myers writes brilliant commercial queer fiction. And I think it had been done before. So like Kate Davies wrote In at the Deep End a couple of years ago that won the Polari Prize. And I think actually that sort of like set things off for people thinking there is a real, there's a real interest for this. And if we publish it, people will read it. So that feels really exciting. It feels like we're in an exciting space. It feels like I hope this, that it's not a trend that people have jumped on and it feels like it might have some longevity. Yeah, it feels like we're in a good place. Mm. That's lovely to hear. That's really positive. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. And thanks for the reading list too. We'll make sure to compile all these and share it with everyone. Links to these. So if anyone wants to, to follow up, let's talk about your third book, Wild Things. We touched on it a bit. It comes out next year. You mentioned it took half the time as the last one. Did you do anything differently than the first two? You said you've become a better writer, but is there anything specific or kind of key things that you did differently with this one that you didn't do or couldn't do in the first two? I wish that I could put my finger on what it was that Mm. made me write this book so quickly. It was just one of those right idea at the right time moments. Like I was actually writing something else and having a bit of a tough time with it. And then I went on an ideas walk, (laughs) just an excuse to get out in the middle of the day. And it just came to me when I was walking around the park near my house. And I, I, you know, my friends and I have often talked about what if we just pool all our money together and buy a big house in the countryside. And then I was like, huh, that's the story. That's the story that I need to write. And I have always come up with characters first, as I was saying earlier. And in this case, I came up with like the hook, as it were, first. And it, I just built it from there. And then Elle and Ray, the main characters, and their whole friendship group sort of evolved out of that idea. And honestly, it just, it was just unbelievably easy to write. And I haven't had that before and I haven't had it since very much. So very much haven't had it since. And yeah, it was just a really, a lovely idea that I had at a time where I was obviously in the right headspace to write. And I think sometimes that just magically happens every now and again. I feel very lucky. 
think we need to know more about this ideas walk. Can you tell us what is the ideas walk? Yeah. So it's instead of getting stuck in front of my laptop, like eight hours, like previously, I just had this thing where I'm like, I'm going to work for X amount of hours a day. And so if that just means sitting in front of my laptop and doing nothing, then so be it. Super unhelpful. And so normally, if nothing's happening by sort of like midday, I take myself out for a walk, maybe for like an hour. And quite often, I mean, the idea is that I'm meant to not have anything in my ears. So no music, no podcast, just so that I can actually let things percolate. But quite often I have a podcast on. And actually, I think when I came up with that idea, I was listening to What Page Are You On, which is Bethany Rutter and Alice Slater's brilliant podcast. And I have told Bethany since that she is responsible for my idea or my ideas walk. And it's just about getting out of the house, getting a bit of fresh air, getting a bit of perspective. I mean, I think it doesn't have to be a walk. I think things come to you when you're doing something mindless, right? So like if you're doing the washing up or if you're showering or whatever it is, where your brain, you're using a different part of your brain and then all of a sudden something knotty will unknot or a plot point will reveal itself. Are you now a full-time writer, Laura? Yes. Have you ever, were you before writing alongside a freelance job or a day job? Yeah. So before I was writing alongside working at The Guardian, where I managed a team. Right. So when I wrote Tell Me Everything, I was still full-time at The Guardian. And then in July last year, so not, not very long ago, I gave up working at The Guardian. But I still do some freelance stuff. Like I do a lot of... Um, I do some like mentoring and like feedback and tutoring and stuff with Curtis Brown, who are the like umbrella agents for my literary agency and like some freelance journalism and stuff like that. But mostly I am writing full time, which is. And was that a difficult decision to make? Because we often have writers in our community who don't know whether they should go all in on their writing. <sighs> was it a difficult decision to make? No. <laughs> because I really was incredibly unhappy at my day job. So I didn't enjoy that and I was happy to leave. So it was an obvious out. And uh, no, because I frankly was incredibly lucky with my publishing deals. So I was able to do that. And I know a lot of people aren't in that position, but as soon as I was able to, I sort of took that chance. And it doesn't mean that I'll always be able to be a full-time writer. I'm aware that this bit could end and then I'll have to go and find a different job. But for now, while I'm able to, I'm sort of taking advantage of it. That's great. I do want to, before we go forward, talk about that book that wasn't happening. And then you ended up writing Wild Things. How long were you working on that book that wasn't going anywhere for you? Probably about four or five weeks, Mm. like a significant amount of time. There's a significant amount of words that have gone in the bin there. I just... I wasn't ever looking forward to sitting down and writing it. Mm. And I really loved the idea. And I think at some point, maybe I'll go back to the idea even. But for whatever reason at that time, it just wasn't mm. gelling with me. And I'd spoken to my agent about it and she she loved the idea. And I just couldn't work out why it wasn't happening. And I just think it wasn't, it just wasn't the book I was meant to be writing at that time. I wasn't in the right headspace for it. So I've, I've still got it. Maybe at some point I'll revisit it or I'll be able to salvage bits from it. There's a couple of bits that I've worked on before where I'm like, ah, this isn't going anywhere, but there's nice ideas here that I can maybe use for something else. Mm. Did you struggle to let go of that at all? It sounded like you were pretty compelled with this new idea. Yeah, no, I didn't struggle. I think I I know that you have to be quite ruthless. And I, I just don't never see, I know it can feel like a waste of time, but it's never a waste of time to spend, you know, a few weeks writing something because it's just, you know, exercising those muscles, like you're always going to find something valuable in there, even if you don't use that exact piece of work. So, yeah. 
And just a reflection, just listening to you talk about various points of your career and your writing, it seems to me that you are never afraid to go towards the joy of your writing. What makes you feel good, like letting go of a manuscript or a story idea that you once were fond of or letting go of a job, a career. And a lot of us, it's actually not easy for everyone, but it's really quite helpful to hear you take that practice on. Yeah. I especially think with writing, if you're not finding any joy in it, and that doesn't mean that you have to be writing something funny or uplifting, but if you're not finding joy in whatever it is that you are writing, it's very unlikely that somebody else is going to find any joy in it. Like, I can't imagine if you found something like an incredible slog to write and it's just been a pain that someone's going to pick that up and be like, oh, this is fantastic. Like, it's never going to come through. Whereas if you've, and I just think, if you're going through the process of trying to get something published, which I appreciate, I actually had, compared to other people, an incredibly easy ride. But getting something published is very difficult. And so if you're doing something every day and you're not having a nice time, you have to ask, what's the point? So like, it's never a waste of time. It's never a failure if you sat down and spent an hour doing something that you've loved. And so I try and take that with me because like, it's still happening all the time. Like I'm writing stuff that could get rejected or whatever. And I'm like, well, at least I've had a nice time doing it. It's a great reminder. Hearing you speak, it reminds me there's a Khalil Gibran or Gibran Gibran poem on work. And he says something like a baker who bakes with distaste bakes a bitter bread. And it's something like that. So I love it's a nice reflection. Yeah, that's perfect. Thanks, Laura. Now, in an interview, I heard or I read that you said that becoming an author once seemed as likely as becoming an astronaut. Now, you're not an astronaut, but you now are an author. Yeah. If someone in the audience or someone listening to the podcast is feeling how you felt back then, that actually the idea of getting published and fi- like reaching that door seems unlikely, what advice might you give them? It's not a closed door basically like I think the world can seem very closed off but it's really truly not and that industry cannot function without good writing and without good writers so they are looking for you it can seem like it's all in the hands of the agents or the editors or the publishing houses or the sales teams or whatever it is but actually there's nothing they can do without you so you do actually hold some power already I would also say it can feel like you are sort of submitting and then you're one of, I don't know, a thousand people that that agent is going to see that month. But if your work has been edited to a really high standard, you're really confident in your story, you've researched the agent and you know what they're looking for specifically, you're actually not going to be part of a pool of a thousand people. You're going to be part of a pool of like a much smaller number. So there are things that you can do to get yourself seen and taken seriously and I think like try and bear that in mind yeah I'm really wary of of talking from my perspective because like although obviously I came up through a scheme like I am a white middle-class cis person who was already working in an adjacent industry so it was relatively easy for me so I don't want to say oh like it's really it's easier to get into than you think because I know that other people are going to have really different experiences but yeah, I would just say like there's people that have got through at the door and there are people that are still holding the door open. So like look out for the schemes, look out for people offering help with your manuscript, look out for agents, agencies that are offering those kind of um they're not schemes, but they'll like look at people's work and they are really looking for talent. So yeah. Thank you. And I recognize nice. that. I think it's just interesting for us to hear different writers talk about their experience your experience is very valuable mm. and your cat is being a, a little bit of a show off there 
So we've talked about daily writing goals. You've said in the past you have used a word count goal. You've also used the vibing. We're curious about your writing rituals or your rules. So there's a quote Neil Gaiman said that we like to quote, which is, he says, he'll go down to his little gazebo and he'll either write or do nothing. That's his one rule. Do you have any rules for yourself or any guiding rituals? No, I try not to have any rules because I don't want to make it. I know what I'm like with rules, which is that I will immediately want to not stick to them. But I actually really love that. And I think so. Actually, I do have a rule. Have my phone in another room. Hmm. And I read Stephen King's on writing and he basically says you have to shut the door from and keep the world out while you're writing, because otherwise it's just you're never going to get into that zone. And for me, the door that I need to shut is my phone. And so I'm never going to work if I'm like looking at notifications popping up or whatever, you know, on my phone. So I try and do that. But and I do I, I try and have a word count that I'd like to hit every day. But if I don't hit it, that's fine. Like if I feel that I've got to a place that I'm happy with, that's fine. Yeah. Try not to be too hard on myself, really. Yeah. Otherwise, I think the work's not going to be great if I've done it under duress. Mm. It's a great reminder shutting the door and that door is our phones. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that you're having... You said writing in the during the pandemic, you were going gangbusters, but it sounds like you're having a harder time right now writing. Not to go all therapist on you, but I'm curious, do you have a sense on why you're finding it difficult right now? Yeah, I think I'm struggling to follow up book three because I had such an easy time with it, which is like, you know, this is a nice problem to have, I'm aware. And so I'm really pleased with it and I'm really excited about it, about book three. And so with book four, I feel this pressure from my UK and my US publishers to come up with something that's going to hit in the same way. So I think I'm working under a different pressure than I was before. And I think there are things just, you know, in my life that are making, are impacting the way that I'm writing at the moment. And so I think this is where it comes down to making sure that you're putting other things before writing. So like, as long as you are in a space where you're getting, you know, some words done or there's ideas happening and you feel like, you're making progress. That's fine. You don't need to be really super strict with yourself because it's a tough thing to do. And there's always going to be things that impact it that you have no control over. And so I think just being patient and waiting it out, it'll happen. That's great advice for us all, I think, being patient. I'm curious about your third and fourth deal because Quirkus snapped up two novels from you. And I know you said that you feel the pressure on book four. And I wondered if that was because that's on contract whether there's a difference between when you're writing a manuscript and you know you're going to submit it to your agent, but no one's expecting it versus when you have it under contract and you feel a different kind of obligation. Is that impacting it at all? Yeah, absolutely. There's, you know, it suddenly becomes about a financial pressure rather than about a creative idea. And when they bought two books from me, I actually, I didn't have an idea for book four. Like I had a sort of list of bullet points where I was like, I could write about this or I could write about this, but I didn't have a a set idea. And they were like, that's fine. Don't worry about it. And then I assumed something would come and it did. And I do have an idea and I am working on something, but it is very different to being like, hey, this is the, you know, a passion project. Yeah, I think that's mainly it. And just because and I see this with writers a lot, because with aspiring writers, they might think a five, six book deal or a two book deal sounds great. But in reality, the pressure can be quite tricky. With that in mind, if you were to, after these two books are over, would you ever consider not accepting a two book deal and actually just submitting one by one and selling it that way? 
Yeah, I think that's really interesting. So I potentially, yeah. So with this, I chose a two book deal. Like it was always on the table that I could have just sold one. And I was like, no, no, you know, because you're looking for that security. But actually, I wonder if creatively it would have been better for me to have just gone with the one. I think in future, I'll think much more carefully about it and maybe make sure that I've got something ready to go before I, I sign up for two. That makes sense. So the reality of being a writer is that you are in public and you receive praise, but you might also receive comments that are not as helpful or not as positive as we'd like. What has been your way of, if you've had anything like that, what has been your way of dealing with that? Do you just ignore comments or do you just have a trusted group of friends you talk to? Or what advice would you give someone? Yeah. So I don't read reviews at all. So I have never read an Amazon review in my life. So I don't know what people are saying, good or bad. And that's because I think if someone said something really nice, I'd take that on board. And that means that if someone said something really horrible, I'd also take that on board. So I'm not interested in that. I've never looked at Goodreads. I've never done anything. The only thing that I can't avoid is when people tag me in things on Instagram. And so mostly people are tagging me in lovely things because why would you do anything else? But occasionally people will tag me in like possibly like a three star review that they've given a book. And then they'll outline all the reasons that it's three stars. And I just don't engage with it. And like three stars can sometimes be really positive, but quite often they'll have something negative to say. And uh, yeah, I just don't engage. I'm not interested in that. And it's not for me. Like reader reviews are so important for other readers. And like I totally engage with that as a reader. I will read reviews of books and stuff like that. But they are not for the author to see and they're really not for the author to engage with. So I always try and keep really far away from that. And if me and any of my friends who've also had books published see something that we're not meant to see or like someone says something negative or whatever it is, like we'll just have a laugh about it. Like you have to and try not to take it too seriously. But it does mean then that you can't take the praise too seriously either. You just have to try and do it for the sake of it. I think that's great advice that actually those reviews aren't made for you. And Matt and I often talk about this idea of wearing both praise and criticism lightly Mm. because you can't, when you get a lot in both direction, it can be too heavy a cloak to take on. Totally. So that makes sense. That's good advice for anyone who has their work published, I think. So I'm curious, you're three books down, you're on your fourth one. Is there any advice that you give to your younger self? Maybe something that you have a little more wisdom now over the years and over the books. Any advice to your younger self just about to embark on this writing and publishing journey? Whoa, interesting. I think I would just say sort of stick to your guns and make sure that you are always working on something that it feels true to you and isn't what you think the industry wants to publish. And I do think that's something that I've managed to do, but only after a lot of work and thought and effort. It hasn't come easily to carry on doing that. I could easily have swerved to do something else once I understood what it all looks like. So yeah, that's what I'd say. Great advice. Now, at the Salon, we often talk about the mountaintop, the dream of what we're hoping for in years to come. And this obviously changes as we grow and reach our goals. And inevitably, it's probably changed for you over the past couple of years. What might your mountaintop look like for the years to come? Wow. I just want to keep writing. I just want to keep doing what I'm doing. Like, if I am able to just keep writing love stories and stories about queer people and their lives, I will be really happy. That's all I want to do. Great. 
And as one of your biggest fans, I would also be very happy. Mm. So I'm glad that that's. Oh, thank you. Oh. Yeah. All right. Well, Laura, this has been so much fun. You've uh, so much wisdom in only three books, working on fourth. We'll be rooting for you on your career. You've been so helpful. Thank you so much for today. It's been such a delight. Thank you so much. Yeah, this has been so lovely talking to you all. Really appreciate it. Yeah, very refreshing. I think uh, the vibe draft is going to be one of the <laughs> the, the uh, descriptors we start to use in the community here. So, <laughs> Laura, thank you so much. How can we stay in touch with you? You mentioned Instagram. Is that the best place to follow you? Yes, I'm on Instagram. That's Laura E K, and I'm on Twitter, Laura Eliza K. So. Amazing. Find me there. Great. Any final asks of us, requests, complaints? <laughs> no complaints and no requests. Just thank you so much for having me. It's been a total pleasure. Uh, thank you, Laura. Well, we'll be rooting for you. We really appreciate your time. Thank you for tuning in to the London Writers Salon podcast. If you enjoyed our chat and you'd like to join us for the next one, please visit londonwriterssalon.com for more information on how to become a member. As a member, you will have access to our interview archive, to our workshops and our cozy online writing community. Whatever kind of writer you are, it is an excellent place to make new creative connections and focus on your craft. And if you struggle to find time to write, you're welcome to write with us at our daily Writer's Hour writing sessions. It runs Monday to Friday, four times a day, and all you need is the desire to write, something to write with, and something to cheers us with. We think it's the world's best virtual co-writing space for writers, creatives, or frankly, anyone who just needs to get some work done. Visit writershour.com to sign up and join us. Until we write again. Mm-hmm.